0: Welcome to Access Utah, this is Sherry Quinn. The Utah State University Ecology Center kicks off their Ecology Seminar Series this year with Dr. Jeremy Fox.
1: I'm an Associate Professor in the Department of Biological Sciences at the University of Calgary.
0: He will be presenting a seminar Tuesday, September 16th at 6 p.m. titled Blogs, a New Niche in the Scientific Communication Ecosystem, and one on the 17th at 4 titled Causes and Consequences of Spatially Synchronized Population Dynamics. Fox explores big questions in ecology by following his curiosity. His tool set includes artificial ecosystems inhabited by microscopic predators and prey. His interest in ecology started early when his family vacationed along the Jersey Shore.
1: I used to like poking around the jetties there and seeing if I could find starfish or other interesting animals. And uh, so in high school and college, I actually thought I wanted to be a marine ecologist and I was going to study the ecology of you know, rocky shorelines. But my senior year of college, when I was trying to decide where to go to graduate school, my advisor, who was an ecologist named David Smith, kind of nudged me in a different direction. He encouraged me to look into working with a guy named Pierre Morin, who was not a marine ecologist and actually was a slightly unusual ecologist in that he mostly worked indoors. Uh, he was sort of a lab-based guy and worked with a lot of deliberately simplified ecosystems in the lab as a way of developing and testing his understanding of how nature worked. Um, as in a lot of areas of research, you know, tinkering with a simplified version of the real thing can help you discover how the real thing works. And so that's the road I ended up going down. I went to work with Peter Moore, and I, I never regretted it. Um, Looking back, I think I was very lucky. I think that David Smith, my undergraduate advisor, knew better than I did what sort of research would suit me best.
0: And can you uh, give us a little bit more detail about that research?
1: So one question I work on is spatial synchrony. So spatial synchrony is a kind of a remarkable phenomenon in nature. It means that a species increases in abundance simultaneously across huge areas and then later decreases simultaneously. So a familiar example would be seasonal outbreaks of diseases like the flu, right? Every winter, the entire Northern Hemisphere has a flu outbreak. Um, A less familiar example might be something, I'm a Canadian, so here's a Canadian example, um, lynx and hares in Canada. So the abundances of lynx and snowshoe hares, their main prey, fluctuate in a cyclic fashion. Each species goes in turn goes up, down, and back up again, and that cycle takes about 10 years. And those cycles are synchronous across all of Canada. Um, lynx populations everywhere all increase and then decrease in lockstep pretty much, which is, you know, amazing when you think about it. Uh, I mean, like, take it from me. I'm there. I'm yeah. there. Right? Canada's <laughs> a big place. <laughs>
2: <laughs> right. You know,
1: like, how do, you know, how do the lynx in the east know what the lynx in the west are doing, right? What keeps them all kind of marching in lockstep? That's amazing. Um, and there are a lot of other examples, though it's not universal. Uh, not every species exhibits this wow. synchronous phenomenon. So. Um, so synchrony kind of demands an explanation, and we do have hypotheses as to what might drive it, but it's difficult to test those hypotheses because the required experiments are often impossible in nature. So one hypothesis is it's driven by spatially synchronized fluctuations in the weather. Like it's maybe a cold winter in the East is also a cold winter in the West and, you know, etc. But I mean, what are you going to do? Like manipulate the weather across all of Canada? I mean, you can't, do that, right? So um, my solution, which is which I learned from Peter Morin, is to scale nature down. And so a lot of my ecology happens indoors in the lab in small artificial ecosystems. You can think of them as really tiny artificial ponds. They might only hold a few ounces of liquid, and they have, um, they're inhabited by microscopic organisms. So instead of lynx and hair, maybe things like microscopic predators and prey, which of course are very different from lynx, you know, lynx and hares or whatever you know other sort of large familiar species you might want to name, but they're still predators and prey, right? They still play by some of the same rules. And so the hope is that you can study those rules more easily in this more convenient system in the lab than, um, than maybe you can with larger organisms out in nature. It's very much like, uh, here's the analogy, like an aircraft engineer designing a new airplane, right? You might build a scale model and put it in a wind tunnel to study the aerodynamics. In many ways that model plane is nothing like a real plane but for aerodynamic purposes it is. I'm basically doing the same thing except with ecosystems. In the case of spatial synchrony the organisms I'm studying aren't like a lot of the the more familiar large organisms that you might see if you're walking around outside but for purposes of studying spatial synchrony they play by the same rules and so I can I can build small artificial systems in the lab as scale models to try to figure out how nature works.
0: What can you apply these models to? I mean, what species?
1: The species I'm working with, it's kind of a life in a drop of pond water thing. So the species I'm working with are um, protozoa. They're single-celled organisms um, and bacteria. So so some of the smallest species on Earth, basically, um, most of which... People probably wouldn't have heard of things like amoeba, or um, would be one of the predators on our system, which some people might have heard of, or paramecium might be one of the prey. As to what kind of, you know, what systems are our results apply to, you know, this kind of gets back to how you're using the scale model. You can't really sort of rig up a system that's exactly like any particular natural system, but the hope is, again, that these small systems in the lab kind of play by the same rules, they obey the same general principles. So maybe I'm not building a mimic of any particular sort of natural ecosystem you might care about, but rather the hope is that I'm discovering certain information that then applies to any natural system. I'm learning something about the rules that all systems have to obey even if my system in other respects is not like any of those other systems.
0: You describe your your research as question-driven, and can you discuss uh, what that means and how you go about that?
1: Sure. Maybe a better word would be kind of curiosity-driven, as opposed to, it's as opposed to trying to solve a particular problem that's kind of directly relevant to humans that we've already decided we needed to be solved. I I joke with uh, students sometimes that you know, no no whales have ever been saved <laughs> by any of my research, at least in any direct kind of way. Um, but the hope is that, as with all, I think as with all sort of curiosity driven research, that it's uh, that it does end up being relevant, but down the road in an indirect sort of ways. Whether that's because um, some piece of information that we don't think is relevant now turns out to be relevant, or whether it's because and a sort of an applied issue that we're trying to solve now, oh, it turns out to be solvable if you look at it from a sort of different perspective and maybe kind of change in a little bit. You know, that's the hope that this sort of fundamental work will be valuable down the road. And I, all I can say is I think history has shown that it has been, whether you're talking about, you know, famous examples like the accidental discovery of penicillin or or the many, many sort of less well-known examples. That's the that you're taking with a sort of curiosity-driven research.
0: And who have been your major influences, colleagues, and mentors over the years in this field or related fields?
1: Oh, gosh. So and besides my uh, Ph.D. supervisor, I think every student is always uh, sort of uh, – so uh, always uh you know the apple doesn't fall too far too far from the tree I don't think I think students tend to you know they learn a lot from their supervisors and follow in their footsteps in uh in some ways I guess because my my ambitions are a little more modest I all I do is do the best I, you know do the best I can when it comes to doing my science and the hope is that if everybody does that and I, and the, I think that's what my colleagues do as well that you know Collectively, you're kind of pushing the field forward and making advances that are worthwhile. It's hard to kind of predict where the next big discovery will come from, and sometimes it's not one big discovery. It's more a matter of accumulation of little bits of information that gradually add up to something important or something that we can use to solve problems. It's rare people who kind of end up as sort of lone heroes because they've made, you know, whether like Einstein, they've made some kind of big discovery more or less all on their uh, lonesome. Most scientists are more like foot soldiers, I think. And uh, But that uh, hopefully doesn't mean that they're not, you know, making important contributions. It's just that those important contributions are important uh, sort of collectively.
0: Can you discuss recent discoveries in your field or recent trends and major questions that are being sought after in ecology.
1: In light of my answer to the previous question, this is a little bit of a hard one because now it's a matter of like, (laughs) I'm gonna pick and choose one foot soldier from the army and kind of highlight what they've done. All right, at the risk of sounding very egotistical, I don't know that this is, uh, because there's a lot of, and the other thing I'll say is there are lots of interesting questions in ecology. It's kind of in contrast to some of these fields, I think like particle physics, for instance, where everyone agrees that say like, oh, the most important experiment we can run is let's build the Large Hadron Collider and find the Higgs boson, right? Everyone agrees that that's kind of like the question or one of a short list of the questions we most need to answer. Ecology is not like that. There's a lot of things we need to learn. And I think that's in part because it's a fairly young field. It's been a professional discipline for only a few decades. So I'll just pick out one question of many that i think i could pick and i'll pick somebody for my own work getting back to spatial synchrony our lab has found that widespread synchrony across large areas can actually be generated by quite short distance movement of organisms so individual organisms don't you know cross all of canada or whatever right they only move around a little bit but um in moving around from place to place in their own local area, what they do is they tend to bring, they couple together nearby populations and tend to bring those populations into sync. And so the effect of that sort of local scale movement ramifies up so that at the large scale of large geographic regions or entire continents, things end up fluctuating in sync everywhere, which I think is a pretty, is a pretty cool results. So what you're seeing happening at this uh, large scale, at least our lab experiments seem to indicate that that's happening because of really small scale things that are kind of, you know, because those small scale things are happening everywhere, they end up making a big difference globally. And so I think that's kind of a neat result. It's if I had to pick one result from my work that I'm proudest of, that's probably the one I'd pick. And so that's the one I'll go with.
0: Okay. And I've been curious about what the price equation, what that is. and <laughs>
1: <laughs> So um, you've asked about another aspect of my work that's probably the hardest to explain <laughs> over the radio, uh, <laughs> but I'll give it a go. So I think this is an example of, uh, I talked a few minutes ago, that one one value of fundamental research is that sometimes you kind of, stumble on to an answer to a question by sort of changing the question, or maybe you realize that an analogous question has been asked and answered in a different field. And so you can just kind of take that answer from that other field and sort of translate it and use it to answer the question you were originally trying to answer. And I think that's what I've tried to do with the price equation. So very briefly, the price equation is named for a uh, sort of a brilliant amateur named a uh, George Price, who's probably the greatest amateur scientist of the 20th century, and it's it's basically Darwin's theory of evolution by natural selection put into its most general mathematical form. So it's an equation that, dis, that, that sort of describes mathematically Darwin's idea of how evolution works. And it turns out that this equation is pretty versatile, has a lot of applications. So even though Price developed it in the context of evolution, it turns out there are lots of things that work analogously to how Darwin realized evolution works. So for instance, I've applied it in the context of thinking about how um, species loss affects uh, the behavior of entire ecosystems. So as far as we can tell, species are being lost at at a high rate in many places in the world serve sort of a historically high rate compared to ordinary sort of background conditions and that's due to human activities so we'd like to know the consequences of that and one possible consequence is that whole ecosystems will start sort of doing odd things or behaving very differently than they have they might be much less uh, productive for instance just kind of producing less biomass than they uh, used to or their behavior might change in other ways they might become less stable for instance and uh, So it turns out the price equation helps you to think about that problem. Um, So a a very simple example might be in an evolving population, if all the large individuals were to suddenly be killed off for whatever reason, well, the small individuals are gonna tend to pass on their traits and you'll end up with a smaller bodied species in the future. So that's evolution by natural selection at work. You've selected against the large body individuals and only the small ones remained. Analogously, if an ecosystem were to lose highly productive plant species for whatever reason so that only the less productive ones remain then all else being equal you would expect a less productive ecosystem um that's uh, at that kind of simple level i don't think you really necessarily need the price equation to sort of figure that out but there are more complicated pos- sorts of possibilities the price equation can also describe so basically a way to let you look at the problem of species loss and its eco- and its effects on whole ecosystems through new eyes, through evolutionary eyes, and use this t- useful sort of tool or widget that evolutionary biologists have developed and, uh, you know, use it to solve problems that ecologists had been kind of struggling to solve.
0: And I wanted to talk about your blog, and can you let listeners know what your blog is and how you got it started and what you hope to accomplish with it?
1: Sure. So yes, I have a blog. I've been blogging for a bit more than three years now, um, and my current blog is called Dynamic Ecology, and it's just over two years old. And it's a—I uh, should start by saying it's a group effort. I founded it, but it's actually written by me and two of my uh, colleagues, uh, Megan Duffy of the University of Michigan and Brian McGill of the University of Maine. I think different people blog for different reasons. Um, And I'm certainly not sort of the first scientist to blog. The oldest science blogs are almost as old as blogs themselves. They're over 10 years old. I think for some blogging scientists, a blog can be a form of public outreach. You can uh, write about your research and put it online in a form that people can find easily and is much more accessible to them than scientific papers. It can be a way of trying to influence policymakers. There are other purposes. For us, blogging is a way for us to communicate with our fellow scientists. So it's basically an outlet. It's a brain dump. It's an outlet for all the ideas, opinions, and advice I have that for whatever reason wouldn't be a good fit in a scientific paper. Scientific papers are very formal documents. They go through a formal vetting process, a peer review, right, to ensure that as far as possible, the results can be relied on. All of that's hugely valuable, but it's not the only thing that's valuable. I think there's a lot of value in just you know throwing ideas out there, in expressing your opinion, for instance, about... What questions are most worth studying, right? There's no objective algorithm that can tell you what questions as a scientist you ought to ask in the first place, right? The judgment call, and those are judgment calls we need to talk about. You know, advice or instruction to those who who need it. Debates. Scientists have always done all those things. I mean, you know, from long before there were blogs, but but usually only with people who are in the same place, in the same classroom, attending the same conference, etc., so I think blogging is a way to have a conversation that can include people all over the world. And I think that can be very powerful. I think, particularly in science, where researchers who are studying any given topic, often are scattered all over the world, and a blog is sort of a way to virtually bring those people all together in one place. So that's what it's so that's what it's for, and it's been in, and I'll just say it's been an interesting uh, experience because other fields, I think economics would be one, um, have kind of taken up blogs in a. Bigger way than ecology has. I certainly wasn't the first ecology blogger, but not that many people have kind of taken it up yet. So, so what are ecology blogs going to be, and how are they going to function as a form of communication in ecology? That's something ecologists are still figuring out, and we're we're trying to figure it out by by doing it.
0: What advice would you give to aspiring ecologists?
1: Don't listen to advice from old fogies like me. Um, <laughs> that's a joke but not much of one because there's no one right way to do ecology doing it well takes a range of skills that are rarely all possessed by one person you know unfortunately there's a natural tendency i think and i'm as subject to this as anyone to feel like your way of doing things is sort of the best or the only way of doing things and that the skills and talents you happen to possess are the most important skills and talents and that everyone should, you know, have them and sort of do things my way. And, uh, you know, I wouldn't want to fall into that trap. So I I hope on the blog and elsewhere, I mean, I certainly have my opinions as to how things should be done and or could be done better. And I try to make the case for them as best I can. But, you know, that's just one person's voice and one person's contribution. I hope people would kind of take what I have to say seriously. I hope I know something about how to do ecology well, but um, yeah, I would hope that students in particular will, you know, not just take my advice, but to take advice from any source they can get it from and then make their own way.
0: Jeremy Fox will be speaking this week at USU. Here's what you can expect to learn from his presentations.
1: So the, uh, Ecology students at uh, Utah State have been very kind to invite me to uh, to give a pair of talks in their seminar series. So one talk on, um, I believe, Wednesday evening will be on uh, blogging as a means of science communications. So I'll be talking about that, what I think blogs are good for, and what I've sort of learned about science and scientists and myself, actually, by Sort of writing a blog now for a couple of years, and then the uh, my research seminar the following day on Thursday will be will be about my work on uh, on spatial synchrony and what we've learned about sort of fluctuations and abundance of organisms at very very large spatial and temporal scales in nature by studying microscopic organisms growing in little jars in the lab. So um, I'll be talking about how to do ecology indoors in that second seminar, and hopefully that'll be something that folks will find interesting as well.
0: Great. Well, we are uh, just about out of time here. Is there anything else important that you would like to mention about the blog or your research?
1: I just encourage people to uh, check it out, dynamicecology.wordpress.com, if you're an aspiring ecologist or if you are an ecologist or if you just are curious about what at least the three ecologists who blog there say to their uh, colleagues, I'd encourage you to, uh, to check out.
0: Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for your time, Jeremy. I appreciate it. And thank really interesting. Very much, he will be speaking at the USU Ecology Center Tuesday and Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in. Stay tuned for science questions. Sherry Quinn, Access Utah. Welcome to Science Questions. I am Sherry Quinn. And I am
3: Susie Montgomery. Caleb Daniloff is a writer living in Cambridge, Massachusetts, with his wife and daughter. He's also a marathon runner, a sport he uses to conquer his demons, his way of leaving them in the past. Caleb is the author of Running Ransom Road, a meticulously detailed account of his 18 month crusade running marathons in cities he says he sinned in, where he drank to oblivion, abused drugs, started fights, lost loves, and nearly lost his life. Today on the program, Sherry talks to Caleb Daniloff about his battle with alcoholism and his road to recovery, one race at a time. Science Questions
0: presents two stories of renewal inspired by Caleb's book Running Ransom Road and the human ability to rise above the depths of destruction and suffering. If you could go to the first time you ran the Boston Marathon and what that experience was, was like for you,
2: I ran as a charity runner, um, and so usually most of the charity runners are kind of clustered together in, in corrals. And, um, you know, so the first five to ten miles, you're, you're sort of running together with these people. And like I said, a lot of them ha- are wearing shirts or uh, have messages or portraits of uh, deceased loved ones. And, you know, you know that they're, you know, trying to overcome some damage in their life. You know, I was, uh, was a... Uh, Drunk for, for about 15 years and, and drug abuser. And, you know, the marathon really sort of allows you to overcome yourself, uh, to sort of conquer yourself. Um, and uh, Boston was a, one of my sinning grounds. And so I, I felt like, uh, you know, and running had become such a healing agent for me that sort of setting it against, uh, you know, multiplying it by five times and setting it against the landscape of my past, you know, had sort of uh, an impact on me, uh, sort of a. You know, it was symbolic on a lot of levels, but, you know, it was transformative. I just, uh, I felt softened and capable uh, by the end of the race. So, uh, you know, in that way, it was very special. And I soon, you know, I I had this goal to to break four hours, and I completely sort of threw that out the window once I got running. And, you know, the fans are incredible. I mean, it's uh, wall-to-wall people are out there cheering you on, you know, handing you food and drink. And, you know, it's a very, very communal experience, you know, and running is such a solitary activity and and so running running a marathon and particularly the Boston Marathon, you know, it's just uh, it brings everyone together. It's just sort of this uh, massive beating heart that everyone's part of. Shaking
1: like a to the sun
2: makes me feel like a Find
3: it. Never, never. Far gone. Caleb so runs 30 to 40 plan, miles a week and, plan, and enters one marathon a year. He was planning on running the Boston Marathon this year, but time got in the way, and he could only attend as an avid supporter. After witnessing the heartbreak on Monday from the sidewalk, he's gearing up to return to the streets next year with his running shoes to the pavement.
2: Fundraising is uh, is quite a effort on on top of just the training. So I decided to forego this year, but uh, I think I will certainly be running it next year.
0: And I wanted to go back to your teenage years. I guess right when your addiction started. You said it start in your book. You you write about it starting when you were fourteen years old in in Moscow. And would you mind going back to that that time and when do you think that it all started? What was that first trigger or first experience.
2: I mean I thought a lot about, you know, why I went down the path I did and, and that sort of was the premise of the book was to sort of revisit my past through these marathons. And um, you know, it's really a sort of a constellation of factors, I think. Um, you know, I think there was some genetic predisposition. Um, as a kid I was a prolific bedwetter, uh, so I was uh, sort of walked around, you know, feeling a deep sense of shame and alienation. I couldn't go to sleepovers, really. Um, I couldn't really have people sleep over at my, my place. So there was, it, I was sort of set on the outside already, um, kind of alienated even at a, at a young age. And then my parents moved us to uh, Moscow, to the former Soviet Union, when I was 11. My dad took a job as a magazine, American magazine correspondent there, and... Um, You know, I sort of went native, Um, you know, they put me in in Soviet school and Soviet pioneer camp and as you can imagine, the the Russian culture and Soviet culture is very vodka centric. So I started drinking there. I, I wouldn't say that's where I became addicted. I think it certainly shaped the person who later did become addicted. So it was a sort of a tumultuous time, especially when I came back to the States because I sort of suddenly didn't know what it meant to be an American. Um, you know that those feelings of alienation were very much you know came back to the surface and um, it was sort of in high school that I I really started turning toward drugs and alcohol as sort of a way to, to escape, to fit in, to ease you know, those feelings of discomfort and, and loneliness and that kind of thing. And also at the the end of our stay in Moscow, my dad was arrested on bogus espionage charges and thrown in jail. So our, our ending to the time in Moscow was was very much marred, and we were uh, deported. So it was, uh, it was all very, you know, big upheaval. So there was a lot of sort of self-soothing that I, I turned to. And it was really sort of when I got toward the end of high school and into college when drinking and drugging. Was just uh, became my normal. Um, Up until then, it was just I would just describe it as sort of heavy partying.
0: Was it every day? Was there a day that you didn't drink or or use something?
2: I mean, it got to the point where it was it was pretty much every day. I mean, I was either drunk or hungover, and whenever I was hungover, my immediate remedy was to was to drink a little more. I mean, there were probably some days here and there where I I wasn't wasn't drinking, but it was just uh, it really was the central rhythm in my life.
0: How did it affect you health-wise, and how were you able to really get up every day and go to school or go to work? And
2: You know, I was usually in a state of, of hangover, um, you know, so I felt a bit shaky, a bit nervous. I mean, it had, you know, totally the opposite effect of what I intended it to have. I probably became more sort of insecure and, and nervous, and the only way to counter that was to drink more, and then, you yeah, know, so it was just sort of this vicious cycle, but um, you know, I also uh, at the same time uh, was a heavy smoker, and I'd get winded going upstairs. I didn't eat properly. I was super skinny, and my, I had 19 cavities my freshman year in college. You know, I wasn't the picture of health by any means, but I, you know, I didn't care. You know, it didn't it wasn't something that I really cared about at
0: the time. How was your family reacting around you and your friends? And did you have many friends? Because I imagine you pushed a lot of people away. And you you describe several scenes in the book of interactions with friends and fights. And
2: yeah. You know i probably did push a lot of friends away my family you know they were aware you know that i was you know a heavy drinker and they tried to you know my parents tried to intervene um you know and it was more sort of in an old school fashion it was very confrontational and you know to me that felt like it was judgmental um you know they had you know made me go to see psychiatrists and Things like that, and then there was definitely a, a rift, and I I would pull away and try and be more secretive, and de- it definitely created a lot of distance with my parents. You know, with friends, I would uh, wake up the next morning and have no idea that you know we got into an argument or into a fight or something. And I had girlfriends. Inevitably, those relationships would all demise due to the alcohol issue. Um, so I, it wasn't it wasn't very fruitful in the relation to, in relationship department.
0: What was it that changed? your mind to go down a different path.
2: I didn't really have, I'd say, like a moment of epiphany. I think I was, uh, you know, as you often hear uh, drunks say that you know they got sick and tired of being sick and tired. Uh, that was certainly a factor. Um, I was in a relationship with a woman who's now my, my wife and she had a young daughter. And that relationship was going down the same path as all the other ones. And, uh, and this time though, there was a child involved So that sort of gave me extra pause. And I knew that there's no way that there'd be any sort of real future with that relationship. So I got to the point where I knew that um, if I didn't change, you know, change the direction of my life, um, it was just going to go downhill very fast and wasn't going to end well. And I just knew I had to to change. And so I, I did.
0: How old were you when you first started running and what was that first run like? How challenging was it?
2: It was probably three years into sobriety when I started running. I'd started off by swimming. Um, I really loved swimming. You know, I loved sort of being underwater and all well, the senses are muted and uh, there was something sort of peaceful, almost primordial about it. And But I developed these ear infections that kept getting in the way. I should backtrack and, and say that so the reason that I went down the fitness path in the first place was was really kind of almost out of vanity, uh, because I, after I quit drinking, I quit smoking, I put on like 30 pounds, and uh, you know I saw a picture of myself uh, like on the beach, and it was just I was horrified at like what what I had become, and even though I'd quit drinking, sort of the, how I had ended up, and so I wanted to do something about it, and so I you know I found the pool, and that was working for a while, and uh, after the ear infections, I just tried the rowing machine and then I hopped on a, on a treadmill and uh, was just sort of fast walking and I tried running for a couple minutes and, you know, and there was something about it that I liked that sort of clicked with me. It was sort of that, almost the symbolic feeling of moving forward physically and, you know, and then eventually sort of psychologically.
0: So he stayed on the treadmill, not thinking of himself as a real runner.
2: I was just sort of faking it on the treadmill, you know. And then one day, I, you know, I just decided to try running outside, and um, it was like a whole, whole new world opened up.
0: He eventually found a dirt road in Middlebury, Vermont, where he had been living. He writes about the spiritual experience in the book, where he describes the sunsets he witnessed there as so gorgeous they left bruises.
2: I started realizing that. I could sort of get to know myself again through running, uh, because the demand on the body is, is such that you know there's really no room for false thoughts, and uh, so it was it was very therapeutic. I was able to sort of start working through my past and and trying to reconcile my past and my present, and I also started really thinking about the people that i that I'd been real crummy to, and and how I might reach out to them and what I might say to them and. You know, a lot of my apologies were, were drafted in my head during these runs. It soon became, you know, sort of a, a confessional and a therapist couch and a, and a pharmacy counter at the same time. Uh, it was just uh, I just felt that I'd found something that opened up something inside me where I could sort of get down to the to the root of things.
0: And how did you reach out to some of those people? And did you confront them in person or or through letters?
2: Some people I I, I talked to in person. Most I wrote. Uh, letters to. Uh, some people responded and some people didn't. You know, I, I had to accept that, you know, it wasn't really about me and I had to accept whatever reaction or non-reaction they had. I and mean, it was just important that I made the effort. And uh, I feel that, that running really softened something in me and, uh, you know, it cultivated a, a feeling of humility in me. Some people wrote back and and were perfectly uh, uh, pleasant and, you know, happy that that I'd made the change and they weren't uh, seething with anger. You know, I mean, I still wonder about some people and, you know, I think some people might not ever get back to me, but I'm always, always open to it.
0: Do you ever feel tempted to, to drink again?
2: Not really. Every once in a while, you know, I'll think, well, you know, being real sweet to have a beer after mowing the lawn for a couple hours, sitting on a porch with a friend or something like that. You know, it's very appealing, but I don't feel any pull toward that. It's been 14 years and, you know, not drinking has just become, has become as normal as, uh, you know, drinking used to be. I mean, I feel pretty solid.
0: What cities were the most impactful and meaningful to you running through and which ones maybe were the, were the most treacherous in your drinking days?
2: Boston and New York were places where um, I also did a lot of coke, Um, and for me, cocaine was almost a drinking tool, you know, it just allowed me to to stay up for days on end drinking, and uh, I really got into that, and, you know, so Boston and and New York had that, that sort of element, Moscow was treacherous physically. Um, and it was also actually, that was uh, the one place where I went back, where you asked earlier about being tempted, where it was I felt a challenge to, to my sobriety, because my, my Russian friends were all, you know, a couple of them were had become hardcore alcoholics, and, and a Russian alcoholic uh, is, can be pretty extreme, and uh, so I was sort of faced with that when um, I went to Moscow to run the marathon. And, you know, at one point I even thought, you know, this, it would be so much easier and things would be so much calmer and we would all connect so much better. And, you know, if I just, if I just did one shot and just eased the, uh, the weirdness, but, you know, ultimately I did not. But so that was a little treacherous sobriety wise. Uh, and the marathon itself physically was quite challenging. It was uh, like four out and backs, so it was, uh, you know, you saw the same thing over and over, so it was really sort of mind-numbing, and there were all kinds of absurd mishaps, like they ran out of water at a couple stations, they were rationing water at another station, our bib numbers, almost all of the bib numbers disintegrated because they were made on this really cheap paper, and so it was uh, definitely one of the more interesting marathons that I ran.
0: Enduring searing muscle pain, burning lungs, and stinging sweat drenched eyes were dreaded yet welcomed discomforts for Caleb. Running through the physical pain translated into overcoming addiction and ultimately self-forgiveness. He hopes the book will inspire others who struggle with addiction to embrace change in their own lives as well.
2: I think life is about evolving and it's about to continue to become and not to sort of stay stuck. And even though if you feel like you're, you are stuck, I think people should know that there's always a way forward. You can always put one foot forward. It may take a while, it may be very incremental. Um, it was so in my case, but continue to evolve and have that mindset, you can always overcome yourself.
0: And what is next for you now? Where can we read your articles? And are you working on a new book?
2: I'm toying with uh, the idea of writing more in depth about my Moscow experience, but nothing formal at this point. If you visit my website, which is Daniloff dot com, you can see all, you know all my other writing. Um, there's also more on, on the book there as well.
0: And how cathartic is writing for you? I mean, I imagine that's similar to to running.
2: It is. I mean writing is certainly cathartic. I always think of the Joan Didion line that I don't know what I think until I write it down. And so a lot of writing of the book, it was a learning experience. A lot of things that I came to understand came to me as I was writing the book, not just while I was running these marathons, but it was really processing it and thinking about it. Um, So, uh, you know, writing is a very therapeutic and uh, illuminating process. You know, a lot of things I would never have thought of if I hadn't been engaged in the writing process. And of course, writing a book is, uh, you know, is very uh, can be very taxing, and so it is very similar to uh, the endurance that you need for a marathon. You know, it's a more more like an ultra marathon. Writing a book.
0: In his book, Running Ransom Road, Caleb Daniloff openly shares his old life of self destruction and how he ran his way out, into redemption. He is now an accomplished runner and writer with a proud family.
2: Everything is good and the way it should be.
1: Sometimes you get up and bake a cake or something Sometimes you stay in bed Sometimes
0: Bill Miller, a Mohican from Wisconsin, has been one of the most admired musicians in the Native American music arena. He is an award-winning recording artist, songwriter, and painter. He won a Grammy in 2010 for Best Native American Music Album, Spirit Wind North. He grew up on an Indian reservation called the Stock Ridge Monsey. There his home life was riddled with addiction, and when he went to college, it consumed him in every way. Like Caleb Daniloff, he worked his way out and found atonement. Only his tool was music. Now he uses it to build bridges. Here's an excerpt of my interview with Bill Miller about his road to sobriety and success.
4: In the spring, uh, I remember fly fishing on this river, the Red River, which I still fish in. And it was so pure up there uh, that I used to take a tin cup with me with my creel to put the trout in, and I would um, dip it in the water in certain rapids and and drink right out of the streams. A lot of coyotes, uh, great horned owls, uh, eagles, uh, loons, whippoorwills, a bunch of partridge, uh wild turkeys. The the animals were just incredible. From that standpoint it was beautiful. From the other standpoint it was um I, I didn't know what it was like because you don't as a child you just survive. I was in an alcoholic home. So my dad um ruled us with a heavy hand of abuse and violence and A lot of secrets were kept, and I also saw a lot of racism up there uh, against my father and against the men up there. Uh, A weird submissiveness of racism, uh, the way we paid for things, the way we were treated at gas stations, uh, the way my father was involved with a lot of things, especially when he was drunk, which it was a lot. He was in a lot of fights. Ended up um, taking his life in 1993, but my grandfather was killed in 1968 uh, up there. He was killed by a drunk driver while my grandfather was drunk. He, he fell in front of a car, and the other guy was drunk. And so I mean, it's in my history, so there was a lot of alcoholism up there at the time, and a lot of hidden secrets, and a lot of pain uh, that I didn't see until I got into college. Uh, politically and, and school-wise, uh, schools were fair to meddle, they're not that good. The public schools were very bad. We had to be bussed off the reservation. There was never a time, even in high school, that a college recruiter would ever come to our reservation. and show us the different colleges in the state or around the country. That never happened. Same with politicians. They never came up and, uh, whether Republican or Democrat, they never came to our reservation and promoted their agendas to us. It never happened. We were never asked to vote on things. We were never asked to be involved in the communities outside the reservation. At that time, there were no counselors for us in the, in the high schools. It was a, a split 50-50 white, you know, Indian, and there was no Indian uh, services there for us at all. No counseling, no, no Indian club, so to speak. So we couldn't really share, and I, I, how I coped with it. it was very difficult. I think I became, which I did, I became suicidal. When I was 19, I attempted suicide twice when I finally left my home. Luckily, I didn't succeed. But I, I coped with fantasy. I really, music really helped bridge the gap between myself and my soul. Uh, I could listen to Hendrix 24 hours back then. I bought about six records from the TV guide, the, the CBS or Columbia Record House or whatever that was first record I bought was uh, Jimi Hendrix Smash Hits, uh, Neil Young, After the Gold Rush, Blood, Sweat and Tears, no real good radio stations up there. So I, I had an old record player and I would listen to those. And it, I would fantasize and I would watch TV for Jimi Hendrix because he was a hero of mine. Even though I know he was in, in the drug culture and all this psychedelic stuff, I still saw his soul, I saw his heart. I, I saw a man who was unafraid to be expressive in a beautiful way. I thought he was a beautiful man. Same with Neil Young, I thought Neil was awesome. And same with Blood, Sweat, and Tears. I, I got into blues and jazz by them. They turned me on to classics, you know. So I, I got involved with music, and I started playing at an early age. One of my uncles played in a polka band. And uh, his guitar player one night noticed that I really liked the music, and he said, Do you, he said Do you want to sit in with me? And I had a beat-up a uh, Japanese guitar that I bought for 15 bucks. He gave me a Gibson guitar, and I played on it, and it was the first nice guitar I ever played on in my life. At the end of the show, uh, he let me keep it. I couldn't believe it. This old guy just said, here, you take this home and you start your your career. How old were you? Been? I was uh, 12 years old when he gave me that guitar. I was nine when I started playing. And um, the guitar was an escape for me. And I never, this is the truth, people might not believe me, but I never looked at it as an avenue uh, of success. I didn't look at it as a job. Really didn't, really. And, and, and I didn't look at it as a way to pick up chicks or whatever they were, us have a good time and I, it, it was a it was a healer to me it was my best friend. it was my teddy bear i didn't have a teddy bear i had a guitar and i would fall asleep in tears hold on that guitar play all night even and listening to fighting downstairs or abuse or um i don't know how i survive sometimes i just really don't and i don't know how my brothers and sisters did either they made it but, but they were all damaged damaged goods but i've come out the other end but it was it was music that um really really kept my head and heart together and I think uh, by coping with it in that way, by listening to other people out there, it—what can I say? You know, I was—I was flying, and I never did drugs, and uh, I never thought of doing drugs or alcohol myself as a cover-up for my pain. I really, it was the farthest thing from my mind. But it was in college when I got into college that I—I I was not accepted as, in their peer groups because I was not drinking, screwing everything that walked, and everything—the college mentality, like. You know, drug sex, rock and roll, whatever. They, they didn't even know what rock and roll was, but I had a roommate that partied all the time, roommates and stuff, and they laughed at me. A lot of guys laughed at me on campus because I was very pure. And, and I don't mean this in a Puritan sense or a big, you know, get down on everybody's a sinner. Or this and that. It wasn't what I was about. But I also wasn't about using or abusing substances or women. Uh, I'd seen it all my life. That was the last thing I wanted to do. When I got to the university, I started to see, man, this is a jock school. This is a crazed uh, football, crazed uh, people getting going down to a certain street called Third Street and everybody's getting wasted, and everybody's changing partners every day and every night. And it, it, it depressed me. Well, uh, I broke down one night when um, I figured, you know, uh, nobody was talking to me because I was strange, and the women weren't talking to me on campus. I was bumming out. I'm a guy. I mean, this this sucks, you know. So, I took a swig of beer at a club with some friends of mine. Said, All right, man. They kept putting it in me, and then a couple of girls talked to me. So I thought that must be the answer. And I was half drunk at the first time I was ever drinking. I thought must be the answer. That's the way you get girls. Before I knew it, I, within a matter, of, I'd say it took me six to nine weeks, and I was I was addicted. I was literally I had to have my drinking. I didn't care about anything else, and I and I drank a six-pack in the morning, I drank a six-pack at noon, I drank at night, I miss classes, I started skipping things, I started going into um, rages, I started getting into fights in bars, I started ending up in people's homes I didn't know where they were, I started meeting crazed women, uh, I was hanging with prostitutes and drug dealers. Before I knew it, I was in the darkest moment of my life. I was really alone and depressed and angry and an alcoholic.
0: Bill Miller's talent and passion for music started lifting him out of his alcoholic spiral downward, and the rest is history.
4: My Indian name is it means bird song, and therefore I relate for, to birds and trees because birds live in trees, and out. trees are essential to birds' life. I look at my life like the, the the rings around the tree. Yeah, you can you can look at my life and you can see um, where the drought was, where the good times were, and all. Was. It's not like I went from A to Z immediately and was like, wow, you're recording from Warner Brothers, man, you're touring with Tori Amos, you just played with Eddie Vedder, you just sang a song, da-da-da, it didn't happen overnight, it was a continual growth process of pain, gain, pain, gain, pain, gain, loss, 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 gain, gain, lose, 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 it was constantly... The road, the road, the road. <laughs> you know, it was all that, and it was bit by bit. It was, it was from a mayonnaise jar in a in a bar playing sixty five songs a night of other people's, to a bunch of drunks watching a hockey game, to moving up to a better to a steakhouse to a bunch of drunks in business suits playing sixty five songs a night, to being discovered by other people like Michael Murphy in the seventies and John Prine and people like them who said you need to be somewhere else, to moving an opening act where I made less money opening for Richie Havens, and John Prine, and Michael Murphy, and uh, Arlo Guthrie. But I, I, was, uh, I was seen by thousands of people. So I made $65 a night opening up for these guys. and That barely covered my motel room and, and food. But I, but I got to be known. And then bit by bit, uh, people my name started getting around. And, and before I knew it, I was in Nashville. And there came a point, I think it was at the age of 23, 24, I decided that this is going to be my life. I'm going to be a songwriter. When I realized that I should think about others more than myself, and that's when things happened. And it wasn't easy to do, because as an alcoholic, son of an alcoholic, as an alcoholic myself, you tend to be self-centered, and woe is me. And I do have a lot of personal trauma I've been through, but, you know, my dad's not alive anymore, so he isn't beating me. So-and-so isn't drinking with me anymore, so why why are you there, Bill? Our heads can go in places they shouldn't be and our hearts and spirits should be guiding us on a daily basis. So now I use those experiences not for getting depressed, crying in a hotel room, or drinking myself to sleep. I use them to help out people. I use them to put into songs to uh, heal and and to give people hope.
0: Both Bill Miller and Caleb Daniloff reconciled with a past that nearly destroyed them. They offer a symphony of hope to others struggling with addiction who want change. Science Questions is produced by Sherry Quinn, Susie Montgomery, and Elaine Taylor. Thank you for listening.
4: That the truth will come to me, and it will flow Like a river to the sea, I believe